0: Hey, would you guys pray with me real quick? Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful new day. It feels like fall outdoors, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful um, for the goodness, for your goodness towards us. We're thankful for the life that we can have and experience in you. And Holy Spirit, we ask right now as we jump into your word, we pray that you would help us to block out all the distractions of all the football games that are taking place later later today, all the things that we're thinking about, all the things that we brought in here with us. And I pray, I ask that you would help us to hear what you have for us today. I pray that uh, we wouldn't become so familiar with your word that we would think, oh, I've heard these stories before, but would you open our hearts and eyes and ears and minds and thoughts up to what you would want us to do. Help us to leave encouraged, challenged and changed and help us to change this world for you, Jesus by the power of your spirit. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. So my name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new or visiting, we're really glad to have you with us. And I just want to reiterate what, what Nikki said. Um, getting connected to a, to a connection group here at Genesis is one of the best ways to meet some folks, to have other people care for you and to grow in your relationship so, with, with God. So after service, we want to invite you to head to that blue tent and um, let us talk to you about taking a next step in connecting with Jesus in that way. So as we begin uh, this morning, I want you to think about the last time you got something that was new to you, something that you were excited about. And it could be something as simple as an article of clothing. Maybe it was a new pair of shoes. Everybody likes a new pair of shoes every once in a while, right? Maybe it was something a little uh, more expensive, like a new phone. Earlier this year, I got a new mountain bike. I was really excited about that. Told everybody about it. Like, There's just sometimes we get new things we want people to know. Maybe it was a car or a car that's new to you, a new house. These things are exciting, right? Or maybe it was something a little different like a new teacher, a new professor, a new roommate, or even a new job. Now, earlier this year, Casey and I discovered that we are going to get new siding, new roof, and a new gutter because of a hailstorm that came, and you chuckle because you're like, oh, cool, Like that's exciting. The insurance company is paying for that. Now, our house right now is white, and we've been having some intense debates on what the color of our house is. We have this whole palette of colors, and, and we, really she, but we have decided that we're going to stick with white, right? We've got all these colors, but why not just stick with white? And At first, it bothered me, but then I realized, you know what? I don't care. It's going to be new. Like who even cares if it's white, it's going to be new and our house is going to look new and fresh. There's just something exciting about getting and having and experiencing things that are new, right? It gives us this new, fresh looking perspective on life. And this year as a church family, we've been reading through scripture together. And a few weeks ago, we ended the Old Testament and we're rolling into the New Testament. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm personally really excited to be in the New Testament. The Old Testament was bogging down for me. A little bit and so today we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. Now if you're new to studying or reading Scripture, it's important that you know that the Bible is broken down into two main categories: the Old Testament, which is everything before Jesus arrived on the scene. and then there's the New Testament that tells us about Jesus's arrival and everything beyond. And the New Testament begins with these four books that are referred to as Gospels. Matthew Mark, Luke and John. And the word gospel just means good news. And so they tell us the good news of Jesus's arrival as our, as our Messiah. And today I'm going to do my very best to give you a flyover of the gospel of Mark. But specifically, I want to dive down into a couple of areas with you that I feel like the Lord has, as I, as I read and reread the gospels, I want to take you to some places where I feel like Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to pay attention here. Don't pass this up. Don't get too familiar with this. So, let's begin by asking this question, who is this guy named Mark? And there's some debate amongst modern scholars about who wrote the Gospel of Mark, but personally, I am comforted to know that the early church fathers, as early as 100 AD, they unanimously agreed that the Gospel of Mark was written by this young Greek-speaking Jewish man named John Mark. And here's why that's important. John Mark is mentioned throughout the book of Acts on a number of occasions and even beyond in other books of the New Testament. And you might think, well, well, why does that matter? Well, in Acts chapter 12, we learn that after Jesus' resurrection and after his ascension into heaven, his early followers met together on a regular basis. And in Acts chapter 12, we see them meeting together in the home of John Mark's mother, Mary, and they are praying that the apostle Peter would be released from prison. Now, here's what this tells us. This tells us that John Mark and his family, they played an active role in this new thing that Jesus was launching called the church. And church tradition also teaches us that John Mark was a close acquaintance to the Apostle Peter. And if you're wondering, well, okay, who's this Peter guy? Peter was Jesus' right hand man. And so when Jesus left the earth, right before he left the earth, he said, Jesus, or Peter, I'm going to put you in charge. So Peter was kind of a big deal, and John Mark was his close acquaintance. And apparently he followed him around, and at some point in time, he started capturing these stories that Peter would tell. About Jesus. And he gathered and he captured them into what we know as the gospel of Mark. And the gospel of Mark is unique from the other three gospel accounts of Matthew, Luke, and John for a few specific reasons. First of all, it's the shortest of the four gospel accounts. It's also believed that it was the one that was written first. And interestingly, some scholars believe that Matthew and Luke may have read Mark as source material as they were building and writing uh, their gospel accounts. But here's something that's really interesting. Matthew, Luke, and John tend to focus on the words of Jesus, the things that Jesus taught. But in the gospel of Mark, we, f- we learn about the works of Jesus. He records 18 different miracles that Jesus performed in only four different parables. So it's kind of a different take on Jesus's life and ministry. But maybe here's the biggest thing that makes Mark's gospel so unique. Mark uses the word immediately 49 different times in 16 chapters. And it is a very fast-paced account of Jesus's life where you just see him moving from one place to the other, and he continues to do these amazing things all along the way. N.T. Wright refers to Mark's gospel as a densely packed, fast-paced and action-filled narrative of Jesus's life, because when you read it, he is just moving around so quickly. Now think about this, just as an example of Mark's gospel compared to the others. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy that traces Jesus' heritage back to King David, and that's important. Luke begins his gospel with the the birth account of Jesus, the Christmas story, and then he chronicles the rest of his life. That's important. John begins in John chapter 1 telling us about the eternal nature of who Jesus is as the Son of God and how he came to live in humanity. But Mark says, ain't nobody got time for that. He just starts in Mark 1.1. He says this, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so right out of the gate, Mark grabs his reader's attention and says, here's what you need to know. This is the beginning of the good news. He wants us to know that when Jesus arrived on the earth, God was getting ready to do something new. And then right away after stating this, he introduces us to this man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist showed up on the scene and he had this really interesting message for the people of Israel. He said, repent of your sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But then early on in in verse seven of chapter one, we see John the Baptist say this, He says, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John the Baptist says, pay attention because God is getting ready to do something new through someone new who not only has the power to forgive your sins, but this new person, this new thing, he has the the power to actually allow God's spirit to live inside of you. Now, all of this has happened in the first seven verses of Mark's gospel. and then in, in Mark 1:15, we see Jesus speak for the very first time. and Jesus says this, "The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news." Now we're 15 verses into this gospel, and already you can feel this tangible sense of excitement about this new thing that God is getting ready to do for his people. And in true fashion, if you read all the way through Mark chapter one, this is so interesting, he fast forwards through the first 18 months of Jesus's ministry, okay? His whole ministry was only three and a half years long, so Mark fast forwards and he tells us how Jesus did a a number of miracles, how he was casting demons out of people, But here's what he wants us to know at the very end of Mark 1. He ends Mark 1 in this way. He says, as a result of all the things that Jesus did, he could no longer enter into a town openly, but he stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now we're just now getting into chapter 2. And there's some serious excitement about this new thing that God was doing. And the news was spreading quickly. And at the center of it all was this man named Jesus, who was unlike anyone that anyone else had ever seen or experienced before. And all of this excitement leads us to a conversation that I want us to look at today that's recorded for us in Mark chapter two. And here's what's interesting. In this conversation, Jesus is going to talk about this new thing that he came to start and to establish. It starts in Mark chapter 2 verse 18. It says this: Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, "How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not?" Now I want to stop for just a moment and explain a few things that will help us understand this question. The Old Testament Jewish law required the people of Israel to keep this meticulous list of religious laws and rules that were intended intended to help them understand their sinfulness compared to God's holiness, which I realize sounds really overwhelming for us. But God's point in this was to help the people understand, you need me in every aspect of your life. You can't live without me. I love you, and if you obey me, I will give you the life that you're seeking, right? But here was the problem. In Jesus' day, the religious leaders had come along, and they were putting laws and rules on top of God's laws and rules And it just felt completely impossible to be able to relate to God at all. Now, one of the standards from the Jewish law was the standard of fasting. And if you're not familiar with fasting, it's a spiritual practice where people would go without eating uh, for an extended period of time in order to draw close to God. Now, if you've never fasted before, I want you to know this is a really important practice. I would tell you that I don't think I'm very good at it. I don't practice it as often as I should but it's a way that you can give up something in order to draw close to God. So fasting in and of itself is a really good thing. And so the question comes up, hey, Jesus, everybody else is fasting, but why aren't you and your disciples fasting? And then Jesus answers that question in this way in verse 19. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. And I'm just gonna go ahead and address a question that we're all thinking right now. Hey, Jesus, what the heck are you talking about? They ask about fasting and you start talking about a wedding. Have you ever noticed that he has this way? He just has this way. You're asking this really important question. He's like, oh, I would love to answer that. And he answers it in a way that you're like, what are you, are we talking the same language right now? Well, in this instance, it helps us to know that the imagery of marriage is used all throughout scripture as a picture of the relationship that God longs to have with his people. And throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah was often referred to as a bridegroom who would eventually arrive on the scene in Israel to unite God's people back to him as their bride. And so this is really important. When Jesus mentions the bridegroom here, he's actually talking about himself and he's making a reference. He's hinting at the fact that he is God's long-awaited Messiah, which means there should be a celebration, a wedding feast right around The corner. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding, you know that weddings are amazing celebrations, right? In just a few weeks, there's a young couple in our small group that's getting ready to get married, and I have heard the bride tell several people on numerous occasions, hey, when you come, I want you to be ready to party. And in her own words, this is a direct quote, I want you to get jiggy with it. She actually didn't say that. She used the millennial phrase that I didn't know how to like, I don't know what that means, but I think what you're saying for those of us that are older is you want us to get jiggy with it, right? You want us to party. Now you laugh because you know, like, oh yeah, everybody knows what that means. Why? Because weddings are like, it's a party, it's a celebration. It's a time of feasting. And so I want to go back to this story in Mark because while everyone else is fasting as a sign of their sadness and their remorse about their sinfulness against God, Jesus' disciples, they were feasting. They were celebrating because they believed that they had met the Messiah. They believed that Jesus was the bridegroom who had been sent to rescue them from their sins and unite them back to God. Now, if you keep reading, Jesus is going to explain this in a little greater detail. But I want to remind you before we jump into what Jesus says next. Remember, Mark focuses a lot on Jesus' works, the things that he did. So Jesus is getting ready to teach here in the gospel of Mark. So we should probably pay attention because it's one of those rare teachings that was captured. And this is what Jesus says. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Now here goes Jesus again, right? Like Jesus... Weddings and wineskins and garments, like, what are we talking about? Well, I want to go back and look at that passage, but I want you to pay attention to, I've highlighted a couple of words that you probably noticed, but it helps us get at the point that Jesus is making. Look at that passage again, and you'll notice he talks about old garments and a new piece of clothing, right? Pulling away from the old. He talks about, next slide, he talks about new wine and old wineskins. So there's all this talk of things that are old, And talk about things that are new. And basically Jesus says, here's an analogy for you. If you have an old piece of clothing, you wouldn't take a new patch and put it on there because it's going to stretch and it's going to rip the garment and it will totally ruin it. And if you're not familiar with making wine, new wine, when it's fermenting, it it expands, it spreads. And so you wouldn't put new wine in with old wine skins because it it would blow up the skin and you would lose all of your wine. So he's saying, you got to be really careful with how you mix things that are old and things that are new. Now, I think if Jesus were going to give us an analogy from today, he would say, it is not good for young people to be running around with mullets. That's a style that should have died in the 80s. This, you're new and that's old. Or he might say, it's not good for old dudes to wear skinny jeans. New style, old people, it's just not good, right? Now, we laugh because we're like, yeah, you're right. That's terrible. Jesus is saying, you got to be really, really careful about how you mix things that are old and things that are new. Now, I'm going to admit to you, I've been following or learning to re-follow Jesus for the last 20 years of my life. I have probably heard this parable several dozen times. And I've always kind of known what he was talking about. But as I've been reading it and rereading again, he just keeps bringing me back to this idea. When Jesus came, he didn't come to accomplish something that was somewhat similar to what they were doing before, or something that was slightly different than the Old Testament religious law. He came to accomplish and to establish something that was altogether new. It was completely different, something fresh, something exciting, and in this instance, something that was totally life-giving, which begs the question, okay, well, well, what was it? What's this exciting new thing that Jesus is talking about? well, maybe you know this, but his arrival on earth as the Messiah was actually ushering in an entirely new way for people to relate to God. And more importantly, for us to be restored back to God through the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, Jesus was getting ready to do something that was so new and so different that he would actually make the Old Testament law obsolete. Because for centuries leading up to that point in time, The Old Testament Jewish law said, because of your sinfulness, you needed to sacrifice animals over and over and over and over again, because the Old Testament teaches that sin leads to death. And so by killing this animal, you're spilling blood as saying, I have sinned. This is my offering to you, God. But Jesus is getting ready to establish a brand new way, a new way for us to relate to God and a new way for us to express our faith in him. And so what is this new way? How would it work? Well, here's what's interesting. Jesus hints at it in this conversation. And I hadn't picked up on this before. So let's go back to verse 19. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as they will have him with them. And then look at what he says next. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. So Jesus says, Yeah, yeah, I know that my disciples are feasting right now, but pay attention because there will be a time in the not-too-soon future when I'm going to be taken away from them, and it'll be their time. They will mourn, and they will fast. Now, if you're not familiar with Jesus' story, that sounds pretty ominous. But again, here's what's fascinating, and pay attention to this if you're reading along with us in the reading plan. In Matthew 8, 9, and 10 and beyond, Jesus begins to spell this out, this new thing out. He spells it out so clearly on so many occasions. But unfortunately, as he spells it out, it was going to have to happen in a way that no one would have ever expected. So the next time Jesus makes a reference to this is in Mark chapter eight. In verses 31 and 32, he says this, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. And then look at this, it says, he spoke plainly about this to his disciples, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So in Mark 2, they're feasting. In Mark 8, Peter's pulling Jesus aside and being like, what are you doing? You're the bridegroom. You're the Messiah. God's not going to let that happen to you. We're not going to let that happen to you, Jesus. Like, you are going to become the king of Israel. We all know this. But this wasn't the last time that Jesus had this disciples or had this conversation with them. He says it again in chapter nine. He says it again in chapter 10. Now in chapter 10, they are literally just days. This is days before his arrest and his crucifixion. And look at what Jesus says. We're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and then three days later, he will rise. And if you keep reading through the Gospel of Mark, you will find that Jesus' predictions were 100% accurate. Just a few days later, he would be betrayed by one of his closest friends. He would be arrested in the middle of the night, he would be brutally beaten. He'd be mocked and spit on, and then his body was nailed to a cross. And his, he would die physically on a hill outside of Jerusalem, and his disciples would come along and take his dead body down off that cross, and they laid it in a tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And you know what happened? His disciples mourned because the bridegroom, the Messiah, had died just as he predicted. Now I want you to take a moment and I just want you to imagine what it would have been like to be one of his closest followers. Because he had revealed to you on a couple of occasions that he was the Messiah. You knew it was a fact. And so how could the one who loved people so purely be killed so brutally? How could the one that you watched Raise people from the dead, now lay in a tomb, dead. Because he came to promise and to do something new. And how do you do something new when you die? Now, if you've ever lost a loved one, you understand the pain of that separation. You understand grief. And we've all been there. But I'm going to admit this for myself. I believe this story is true. I just have a hard time like relating to the emotions of the disciples. Because it's a story to us. And I don't think we can fully imagine how difficult this must have been for them to wrestle with the reality of Jesus's death. They saw the things that we read about. They saw it happen. They would have been completely devastated. But what they didn't understand, what they didn't know is that he had to die. He had to die to put an end to the way the old things were so that new things could come to be. Maybe it helps for us to think of it like this. When Jesus died on the cross, he completely fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament law so that we could enter into a brand new relationship with God as our heavenly father. Because the old system said that you had to have strict obedience to the Jewish law, but the new system said, Jesus says, if you have faith in me, That'll be enough. The old law required a continual animal sacrifice for our ongoing and repeated sinfulness against God. But when Jesus died in our place, he said, I've put an end to that. It's done, it's finished. And so thankfully, Jesus' death wasn't the end of the story. It was just an end to the old way of doing things because as he said before, he didn't come to mesh or to mix the old with the new. He came to establish something brand new. Now, Jesus knew this was all part of God's plan. And if you look back to every instance, I have yet to find this in Matthew and Mark, and I'm looking forward to reading it in Luke and John. Every single time Jesus predicts his death, he also predicts his resurrection. They are tied together. He doesn't just say, I'm gonna die. He says, I'm going to come back from the dead. I want you to go back and look at Mark ten thirty four. He says this, they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Every time he predicts his death, he predicts his resurrection. He made that same prediction three different times in Mark, numerous times in Matthew, John, and Luke. And if you read through all the gospel accounts, guess what happens? this every single time. They all, they all end with this amazing story of him being brought back from the dead to pay for the sins of the world. And when he did, he fulfilled the Old Testament law completely. And he made a brand new way for us to be made right with our heavenly father by grace, through faith, and him being able to fulfill those requirements for us. Through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, our sins are forgiven and our relationship with God is restored. In our efforts to please God by trying to be good enough or fooling us into, we just got to be better than everybody else around us. Guess what? Those are old garments. Those are old wineskins. They're guaranteed to fail, to rip, to crack, and to break because they are completely incapable of measuring up to God's limitless grace that's been revealed to us through his son, Jesus. Now, if you're like me, and you're familiar with this story, this is all a recap, isn't it? You know this, we celebrate this. We sang about this earlier today. But as I have reread the gospels, I have been convicted by a very specific pattern in my life. I have allowed the good news of Jesus to in some odd way become old news. The good news of the fact that I am saved by grace through faith has become old news. And for some reason, I go back to these old patterns of trying to please God. And I, gotta, I think I gotta get up at a certain time and pray a certain way and read a certain amount of scripture and do all these religious things. Instead of resting in God's acceptance, I try really hard to make other people happy so they mm. like me. and Instead of rejoicing in God's forgiveness through Jesus, I work really hard so that in some way I can say, yeah, God, but at least didn't I earn just a little part of it on my own? And you know what? One, it's impossible because if that were possible, Jesus wouldn't have to die. But two, it is offensive. It is offensive to the one that died in my place to think that I could do something to earn it. And I can't help but wonder how many of us have been tempted to take the good news and allow it to become old news. And I just want to be clear, there's nothing more than Jesus in this life. And I know that many of you would agree with that, but are you living that way? Are we living that way? Are we embracing the thing that is new, that has saved us and set us free? I've been uh, reading uh, the Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning, and I love how he says this. He, he sums it up like this. He would encourage those of us that follow Jesus to let go of the good old days That never were. Let go of the regimented church you never attended, those traditional virtues that you never practiced, the legalistic obedience you never honored, and the sterile orthodoxy you never accepted. The old era is done. The decisive break of God has happened. He is saying, just be honest with yourself. Go back to the moment that you surrendered to him and live in that. Don't try to do the old things because the old doesn't measure up to the new. And so if you've allowed the good news to become old news, I want to invite you on a journey with me. I think it's time for us to repent. It's time for us to turn our hearts back. And every time we rely on something old to say, Jesus, you have saved me. You have rescued me from that. Your Holy Spirit in my life is doing something new. You are transforming me. You are making me new. I can't make me new. I am guaranteed to die apart from you. And imagine what he could do inside of us if we would just go back to the new and resist the old, to leave the old behind and to enjoy the new because there's nothing that we can chase in this world that's gonna satisfy us the way that he can. Now, if, you're, if you've never received the goodness of that forgiveness and you know it, maybe you're wondering, well, what does that mean for me? Well, I just wanna tell you what it means if you pass up Jesus's gift of forgiveness. This is hard, but this is what he says. Your penalty is death. And not just a physical death. We're all gonna physically die. He says it is a spiritual death, an eternal separation apart from God as your heavenly father, which will land you in a place that we know is hell. And that's not a popular message in our world. But according to Jesus and all the writers of the New Testament, that is the reality of your situation. And that's not good news. But the good news Is that if you are willing to admit I have sinned, I have shattered my relationship with my heavenly father and you are willing to receive the forgiveness of Jesus, then guess what? Your sins can be forgiven. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can be adopted as a child of God. And guess what? While we fast and mourn over our sins, we can feast today and live out the good news. That's what we've been called to do. And so if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, to to accept his forgiveness, or maybe you're ready to repent and saying, I have made the good news, old news. I'd love to talk with you after service today. I'd love to celebrate with you because we need to celebrate these things. Before you leave today, come and find me. We're gonna baptize folks again in October. And maybe you can take a step of obedience and be baptized into him and, and embrace this new life that he has for you. Now, there's one more thing that Jesus predicts In the gospel of Mark, he also predicts it in the other gospels as well. He didn't just predict his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He predicted that he would one day return in power and in great glory. He says this in Mark 13, 26. He's talking about the end of the world as we know it. And he says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man. That is a prophetic title for the Messiah. And he's already hinted at the fact that that's him. Coming in the clouds with great power and glory. I remember when I was 20 years old, my sweet mother-in-law said, hey, Jerry, what do you believe about Jesus' return? And I knew, I I believed all these things about Jesus. I believed that he had died for me, that he had risen from the dead, but I did not think about this. And it scared me to death. And I knew if he arrived Mm -hmm. at that moment in time, I was apart from him. And it led me on a journey of repentance towards him. I surrendered my life to him. And maybe today is the day for you to do that too. At the very end of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, this is what Jesus says. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Write this down, it is trustworthy and true. There will be a day when he will take all the brokenness of this world and he'll make it all right. And he invites us on that journey with him right now. And so here's what I want to do as we wrap up today. I I want to lead us through a time of prayer. And I'm going to give you some time to pray silently in your seats. I will lead you through some prompts. But I want you to think about where you are in your relationship with Jesus. And I want to invite you to confess whatever you need to confess, to embrace whatever you need to embrace. And you can leave here today unchanged. That's totally up to you. But I would just encourage you to drive very safely because your, your eternity hangs in the balance. And for those of us that are claiming to be followers of Jesus and not living out the good news, we're gonna have to face him one day. He knows, and he is inviting us to so much more. Let's pray. I want you to take a moment <clears throat> and think about this thing that we know is the good news, the gospel, the message of Jesus to die in our place, to forgive our sins, to be adopted into God's family? Have you embraced it? Have you received it? Have you accepted it? Have you been like me and allowed it to become old news? Take a moment and pray, confess. I confess, this wasn't a fun discovery for me this week. I remember, I remember when the good news was good news. And I'm sorry that for whatever reason, I've, I've allowed it to be old news. We're all tempted to do it every, every moment of the day. I'm sorry for the times that I have gone back to try to rebuild something that you completely shattered and swept away. I I confess my religious formula, it's terrible. I don't even like it. It makes me grouchy. Would you make us aware of our religious formulas? Would you rip those old garments? Would you burst those old wineskins, and would you fill us with the newness of life that comes through your Holy Spirit because of our faith in you? You're willing to even forgive us for this. Would you help us to turn back to you and to receive it? Now, maybe you're here today and you've never received this. You've never done anything with this amazing gift that Jesus has offered you. I want to give you a moment in your seat to just confess your sinfulness to your heavenly father, to ask for his forgiveness through his son. And I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would do for you what he did for me. He drew me out of my chair and led me into a conversation with someone in my life has been drastically different. So take a moment and pray through that. Father, I pray for any of my friends that are here that have just been sitting on the fence. It's a dangerous place to sit. Holy Spirit, I remember sitting in a chair and you spoke directly to me and you said, today's the day, are you gonna come? I pray that you'd speak to them in that way. I pray that they would respond in joy knowing that their sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus. And I pray that they do something about it today. They talk to me, they talk to Kevin or Nikki, they talk to somebody. They wouldn't leave here today without letting that be known and they would take a next step and be baptized into you soon and they would embrace this new life. Here's the last thing we're going to pray through. We believe that Jesus will return sometime. And it's, look, it's looking like sooner and sooner all the time. Are you ready? Are we ready? Take a moment to pray through whatever, that, whatever changes you need to make in your life so that today if he were to return, you were ready. Or what would he want you to do today that could prepare other people for that? Just pray through that for a moment. Jesus, we're ready whenever you are. At least we think we are. Would you help us to draw strength from your Holy Spirit every day? Would you help us to cut ties with all the things in our life that are drawing us away from you? All the things in our life that we're wasting our time with. So that we can prepare for your glorious return. When you will make all things new. You have actually, you actually want to partner with us in this. Would you help us to take this very seriously? We are looking forward to this prophecy being fulfilled in our lifetime. We don't know when it'll happen. It may not happen in our lifetime, but would you help us to live in expectancy? Help us to live on mission for you. Jesus, we love you. Help us to be found faithful. Help us in our unbelief. It's in your great name that we pray, amen.